You take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Matthew chapter 2. Book of Matthew chapter 2. As we continue our sermon series entitled Christus Victor, uh, which means Christ the Conqueror, Christ Victorious. Uh, Two weeks ago, we began this series in the book of Genesis. That word Genesis means beginnings. And we see in Genesis the beginnings of the universe. And it was a very good beginning. The universe was at peace, and at the center of God's kingdom was the Garden of Eden, where the man and the woman lived under the fullness of God's blessing and care. Everything was well until the insurrection began, until the serpent whispered sweet words of rebellion to the man and the woman. And Adam, the first man, began to think that he should not be under God's authority, but that he should be in charge, that he should be in control, not serving God's kingdom, but seeking to build up his own. But when man tries to be his own king and his own authority, guess what happens? Everything breaks down. And so the world has been plunged into disorder and suffering and death, and so man has been exiled from God's good and perfect kingdom. In the wake of man's rebellion, God said that the insurrection would not stop in the garden. Strife and conflict would continue between the seed of the serpent, those following in the devil's footsteps against God, and the seed or offspring of the woman, those who would humble themselves and trust God. And the climax of the war will be when an offspring of the woman would emerge victorious by crushing the serpent's head, undoing the work of the serpent, the devil. And then, as a consequence, restoring God's kingdom in its fullness and ridding the cosmos of evil and bringing the universe back to a place of peace and joy and life. As the Bible story unfolds, we discover that this skull-crushing offspring would be a great king who would bring liberation for his people and justice to the wicked. And in time, as you read through the Bible story, Uh, From the little town of Bethlehem, a king of the Jews did emerge. His name was David. He was a mighty warrior. He was a man after God's own heart, but he was a sinner. He was a flawed king, and he could not crush the serpent's head. And after he died, David's dynasty disintegrated and became corrupt and weak. Uh, Israel's golden age faded. The kingdom was divided between north and south. And evil men, rulers, tyrants, despots, the seed of the serpent, would dominate and wreak havoc in the world and cause much pain and sorrow for the people of God. Well, by the time you get to the first century B.C., the Jewish people were in desperation for the king to come. For hundreds of years, they found themselves under the control or influence of wicked foreign powers, and now the greatest and strongest of those powers, the Roman Empire, had the whole world in its iron grip. And they found themselves under the, under the power of a, of a murderous, maniacal, power-hungry megalomaniac named Herod the Great. Herod was appointed by Rome to be the king of the Jews, but he was no friend of the Jews. If anyone exemplified the seed of the serpent, it was Herod. And and as the Jewish people continued to groan under the weight of wicked rulers, their longing for the king, the real king, 
the offspring of the woman, that longing was burning hotter in their hearts than ever before. This desperate longing is really captured in the song that we, we just sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Ransom Captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. And it is in this setting that the book of Matthew opens. And if you go back, actually, look a little bit back to <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1, look at how it starts. Matthew says in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the son of David, the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. But notice also Matthew uses the word genealogy. <clears throat> and uh, in the Greek, that's the word uh, geneseos, uh, genesis. Uh, geneseos is the title of the ancient Greek translation of the book of Genesis. <clears throat> Now, Matthew chapter 1 is a genealogy, but, but notice that Matthew calls not just chapter 1 Genesis, he says that this whole thing that I am writing is the book of the genealogy or Genesis of Jesus Christ. And so, Matthew uh, seems to be saying that uh, the arrival of Jesus into this world marks a new Genesis, a new beginning. And as the, Old, as the Old Testament book of Genesis chronicles the old creation, Jesus is ushering in a new creation, a new kingdom, a new people. Something new is about to happen. Well, <clears throat> when we turn over to chapter 2, uh, we read about the birth of Christ, and we read about these wise men coming from the east. They are, they are Gentiles. They are non-Jews who would normally not be considered to be a part of the people of God. And yet in verse 2, they come to Jerusalem looking for the one who is born the king of the Jews, and they come to worship him. And in this, Matthew is showing us that the king of the Jews is not merely the king of the Jews. He's king of the world. He's the, he, the, the promised offspring of the woman uh, who would come is the king of everything. Well, the wise men follow God's guidance to where the little boy Jesus is living, and they offer up gifts fit for a king, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Uh, it's a warm and nostalgic and sentimental and peaceful scene, and we love it. And we put it on Christmas cards, and we make it into pretty little nativity sets. But remember what I've been saying these past two weeks about nativity sets. The nativity is not as peaceful as we like to think that it is, because the entrance of this new child into the world marks an escalation of an old war, and it is a sign that somebody's skull is about to be crushed. And so the powers of darkness naturally are enraged, and ground zero of this age-old war comes to the little town of Bethlehem, and things are about to get ugly. But in the midst of that ugliness, Matthew reveals God's battle plan and the reason God's people can have hope. So please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading and the hearing of God's precious and perfect word. This is Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 13. This is actually right where uh, Pastor Jarrett left off a moment ago, uh, verse 13, and we'll read on down through the end of the chapter. Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Now when they had departed, they being the wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he should be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I am very much aware of the, the weight of bringing your word to a congregation, and uh, it is a weighty thing. Father, I pray that you would help me as the bringer of God's word. Help me to rightly divide the word. Help me to preach with clarity and help me to explain and exposit the text in such a way that the congregation can hear you and hear your voice and that they might see and savor Jesus Christ. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if I were to sum up this whole section of Scripture that we just read in one sentence, I think I'd do it like this. Jesus is the new Israel who will bring about a new exodus, putting an end to our exile by being despised and rejected. In fact, the four points of my sermon will be taken from that sentence. Jesus is the new Israel who will bring about a new exodus, putting an end to our exile by being despised and rejected. Now you say, Deemer, where in the world are you getting that from the text? I'm looking at the text and I see an evil king killing children. Jesus escapes. Jesus goes to Nazareth. And yeah, I see that too. That's there. But there is so much more there. And we know that because of two things Matthew does that would really resonate with his Jewish audience. One, he mentions geography. Uh, Several places are mentioned here, Egypt, Ramah, Nazareth. Now, often when we are reading the Bible, we treat geography much like we treat genealogies. What do do you tend to do or what do you want to do sometimes when you come to a genealogy? Uh, You can be honest about it. We, We tend to want to skip over that. We, we blow past that. It's just a bunch of names that really don't mean anything to me, so who cares? But we have that attitude to our detriment. The places that are mentioned in this text are not just dots on a map. They are bound up with deep meaning and resonate with Matthew's original Jewish audience, much in the same way that if you start talking to an old person in his 90s, 
And you mention places like Pearl Harbor, Omaha Beach, Hiroshima, Okinawa. Those names, those names, they're not just names. They bring back, they can bring back an intense emotion and so much meaning can be bound up in them. Same thing was true with the first century Jew, if not more so. Matthew mentions some geography here, and he also mentions prophecy. He starts taking us to different places on the map, and he connects them with words spoken by the prophets long ago, and then he connects it all to Jesus. Matthew, in essence, wants to teach you theological geography. Maybe that should be a class in seminary. Theological geography. And and if we read these scriptures through a framework that considers what these things would mean to Matthew's original audience, I think it'll go a long way in, in helping us to discern the meaning of what Matthew is teaching us, and actually, it will reveal God's battle plan of how his war against the darkness, against the serpent, will be won. Well, the first thing that Matthew wants to teach us is that Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is the new Israel. Not long after the wise men departed, maybe even just like a couple of hours later, uh, Joseph is awakened in the middle of the night by an angel of the Lord who in verse 13 warns Joseph, get out of there. Death is coming by way of Herod, and so Joseph must take the child and his mother and seek refuge in Egypt. And Egypt would be a good place to go, a very logical, sensible place to go. It was about 75 miles away, and, uh, and while it was under... Roman control, it was outside of Herod's jurisdiction. What's more, there were over a million Jews in Egypt at that time, so that'd be a good place for them to uh, connect with and blend in with their their own people, maybe find some work. Uh, This would be a good place for refuge. But this relocation is not just about pragmatics. God is having the family flee to Egypt, not because he can't protect Jesus and Israel, Instead, this is happening, verse 15, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Herod thinks that he is all-powerful and in control, but he is unwittingly serving the purposes of God and fulfilling prophecy. Jesus' flight to Egypt and his subsequent departure out of Egypt is fulfilling something that was foretold, talked about long ago. Moses quotes from Hosea 11.1. But when you turn to Hosea 11.1, we run into a problem. Let's see if you can catch it. The prophet, writing hundreds of years before Jesus, says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. See the problem there? Actually, there's two problems. First, that doesn't appear to be predictive prophecy, uh, speaking of future events. Uh, That's actually speaking about the past. Secondly, whom is Hosea speaking of? Who is the son here? This is easy. Not Jesus. Israel, the nation of Israel. Hosea is saying that when Israel was a child, when Israel was young, God called him out of Egypt. Now, Hosea here is picking up on language uh, found in Exodus chapter 4, when, the, when Israel was in bondage to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and God raises up Moses to deliver Israel from slavery. And Moses, speaking on behalf of God, says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go 
that he might serve me. God is calling Israel, God is calling his son out of Egypt to serve him. And the prophet Hosea is reflecting back on that. So then what what does that have to do with Jesus? Why, Why is Matthew saying that Jesus' experience is fulfilling what, Herod, what, what Hosea wrote about when Hosea wasn't looking into the future regarding Jesus, he was looking into the past regarding Israel. Well, maybe we'll get some help if we read a bit further in Hosea 11, which is always a good idea to do when a New Testament writer quotes just a single verse from the Old Testament. Uh, typically, uh, the idea is to bring about into your mind the entire section of Scripture, not just that one verse. So let's, let's read again. Let's start with verse 1, but then we'll keep going a bit. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Okay? God called his son Israel out of Egypt to serve him, But Israel kept going away from him. Indeed, you could really say that Hosea 11, 1 and 2 is a mini history of Israel. I mean, those verses really sum up what Israel has been like throughout the entire Old Testament. God goes on to say in verse 5, they have refused to listen to me. And then he goes on in verse 7 and says, my people are bent on turning away from me. Hosea keeps talking about how Israel, God's son, the one meant to serve God, the one meant to mediate the blessing of God to the nations, instead becomes like the pagan nations, and over and over again, they fail to be the son that God calls them to be. Israel is a failed and faithless son. But again, why does Matthew see Jesus' experience as fulfilling words spoken by the prophet Hosea. Kevin DeYoung has some helpful thoughts that can bend our thinking in the right direction. Let me quote from him. He says that the first step toward understanding Matthew's purpose is to look more carefully at the word fulfill. The Greek word means to fill up. That's what Matthew is at pains to demonstrate in his gospel, that Jesus was filling up the Old Testament. Sometimes this meant very specifically that the Old Testament predicted the Messiah's birthplace would be in Bethlehem, and Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. That's fulfillment. We understand that. But fulfillment can be broader than that. It can refer to the filling up of the Old Testament, that is, bringing to light what previously had been in the shadows. That's helpful. And and, and keep that in your head as we consider what Matthew is leading us to do in this passage. He is leading us to make a comparison and see parallels between Israel and Jesus. And there are a lot of parallels. Just like Jacob in Genesis takes his family, those first Israelites, to Egypt for refuge and safety when death hangs over the people of God, so Joseph takes his family, Jesus and Mary, to Egypt for refuge to escape the threat of death. And just as Israel, when the nation was still young, is called by God to leave Egypt and return to the promised land, so Jesus, when he was still young, is called out of Egypt to return to Israel. And just as Israel is spoken, was spoken of as God's son, we're going to see, you see the very next chapter in, in Matthew 3, that God says of Jesus, this is my beloved son. And it just keeps going. 
uh, Israel and their exodus passed through the waters of the Red Sea and then wandered in the wilderness for 40 years experiencing great temptation. And in a couple of chapters, Matthew shows us that Jesus will pass through the waters of baptism and immediately after that, go, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. You think that's a coincidence? There's so many parallels. But considering those parallels also inevitably leads us to consider the contrasts, the differences. Israel was God's faithless son. Jesus is God's faithful son. Israel constantly disobeyed. Jesus constantly obeyed. Israel went after false gods. But Jesus said, away with you, Satan, you shall worship the Lord God only. What's the point? The point is that Jesus is the one true Israelite and he is retracing Israel's steps. He's recapitulating Israel's history. But unlike Hosea 11, where we were reminded that Israel at every point fails, Jesus is faithful at every point. Jesus is God's son in the truest sense, and Jesus is the true Israel. Remember what he talked about in the Gospel of John, uh, I am the true vine. Vine was, was, a, was often used in the Old Testament speaking of the nation of Israel. They were a vine and they did not produce good fruit. We see this over and over again. And so the one, the one, Jesus is the one who is able to fully and finally fulfill Israel's mission to mediate the blessing of God to the nations. This does not mean that God has discarded ethnic Jews. Instead, it means that Jesus Christ is the one ethnic Jew, the only Israelite, that fully obeyed and kept God's covenant and therefore receives all of God's covenant promises to Israel, and anyone who would experience the benefits of those promises must find themselves united to Christ, the true Israelite, by faith. And so, as one person once said, Israel is born anew through one Jewish man, Jesus. And what Matthew is showing us is that even the various events and situations of the Old Testament, which are real and historical, are also typological. Jesus is filling up their meaning. In other words, they're all somehow connected and pointing to a much larger story, namely the story of what God is doing in Christ, the story of a coming serpent-crushing offspring who will bless the nations. Was that not the great lesson learned in Luke 24 by those two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Uh, Those two disciples who were depressed and confused due to the sufferings and death of Jesus, they didn't get it, and and the resurrected Jesus appears to them, and and they don't know it for a while, And, and how does Jesus help them understand that everything that has happened was according to the sovereign plan and purpose of God? How does he do it? He has a Bible study with them, and we're told that beginning with Moses, And all the prophets, he interpreted to them, and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, Luke 24, 27. He starts with Genesis, beginning with Moses, and then he just keeps going. And he shows them how it all connects to Christ. Friends, whether you are reading about Israel's calling, or whether you're reading about the Exodus, or the slaughter of the Canaanites in the book of Joshua, or the battle between David and Goliath in the book of 1 Samuel, or Jonah and the fish, or the Old Testament temple, or the Old Testament animal sacrifices, or the origins of marriage in Genesis 2, these things are not isolated and merely a thing unto themselves. They are instead pointing to Christ. 
That means that this book is not about you. It's not about you. It's relevant to you, but it's not about you. It's about Christ. He's the hero of the story, and all other stories ultimately are enfolded into his. And so, Jesus Christ is not only the king, he is the faithful son. He is the faithful Israel of God who has come to bless the nations, and he will bring blessing by bringing a new exodus. That's my my second point, bringing a new exodus. You can, if, if you're taking notes in the, in the bulletin, I've got kind of that sentence that I gave to you at the beginning of the sermon, kind of broke it down into four points. So this is the next part of that sentence. It will bring about a new exodus. There are not just parallels here between Jesus and Israel, but Jesus and Moses. If you're familiar at all with the book of Exodus, you probably picked up on that. I mean, you think about it. What do you have? Oppressed Hebrews, a child born who is a savior and deliverer, born to humble parents, a God-hating king who unleashes death on children to secure his own power, God-fearing parents who preserve the life of their son. All of these elements are in both stories. If you go down to verse 20 of Matthew 2, God says to Joseph, go for those who sought the child's life are dead. Just like God said to Moses in Exodus 4, go for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Matthew knows that his Jewish audience is going to pick up on those parallels And he wants them to recognize that Moses' story of his leading the Jews out of slavery was actually pointing to someone and something greater than Moses. Jesus is a new and better Moses who will offer a liberation greater than that enjoyed by their ancient Israelite forefathers. In his Matthew commentary, R.T. France puts it this way. He says, when Jesus came out of Egypt, that was to be the signal for a new exodus in which Jesus would fill the role not only as the God-sent deliverer, but also as God's son, Israel himself. He plays both roles. Now, at this point in the story, in Matthew 2, it's not exactly clear how Jesus will be that new and better Moses leading his people to a new exodus, but there are little hints. Even in the next few verses, which are some of the darkest verses in the whole book, so that moves on to the next point. Jesus is the new Israel who will bring about a new exodus, putting an end to our exile putting an end to our exile. Verse 16 says that Herod became furious. Herod is enraged. Now, if you know anything about Herod, if you've read history, ancient histories, and you can find a lot of information on Herod, uh, not just in the Bible, but a lot of information on Herod outside the Bible, uh, he was a bad guy. He was arrogant. He was power hungry. He was constantly paranoid that somebody was going to usurp his power. He was a brutal man who murdered at least one of his ten wives and murdered three of his sons. No one liked him, and everyone feared him. That's why if you go back up to verse 3, it says that when those wise men were asking about the one who was born king of the Jews, it says that Herod was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. In other words, when Herod is troubled, (laughs) everyone's troubled. When Herod's not happy, no one is happy, because you never know what he's going to do. I mean, he could just snap in a moment and, and do something real crazy, and he did a lot of crazy things. Herod is hearing about people asking about a king that's not him. And so the whole city is walking around on eggshells, terrified. That there is something that is unsettling to Herod about the coming of Christ into the world. Why? Because Christ understands what the birth of this child means. This little child is not going to stay a little child. The scriptures speak of a Messiah to come who's going to rule the whole world. 
And so for Herod, the universal kingship of Messiah means a threat to his own kingship, a threat to his own autonomy and sense of independence. In fact, Herod is the embodiment of Psalm 2 where David writes, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, or, the, or that could be translated Christ, against this Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The kings of the earth are conspiring and raging against God and raging against his Christ because they do not want to be in subjection under and accountable to the Lord because they want to be Lord. And Herod is raging against this little boy because Herod understands Christmas better than most people today do. Many people celebrate Christmas and they don't feel threatened by Jesus at all because they just think of him as a cute and cuddly baby surrounded by smiling animals. And they enjoy the sentimentality and the presence and the family get-togethers and they feel at ease and secure at the thought of Christmas. But friends, Herod has more insight and spiritual awareness of the true meaning of Christmas than most Americans do. Because Jesus has come into the world not for you to have simply a holly jolly Christmas or to make yourself feel good about yourself by doing religious things once a year. Instead, Jesus has come to overturn an insurrection against him and to establish a global empire to the point where every knee will bow and every tongue confess his lordship. But Herod wants none of that. In fact, apart from the grace of God, none of us do. Because Jesus' arrival in the world threatens not just Herod's kingdom, but yours. Herod rightly perceives this child as a threat. And so, verse 16, he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Herod sends death squads to Bethlehem, brutally going from house to house, ripping little children from their mother's arms, pinning down screaming fathers, thrusting blades into the bodies of precious little children. Herod is replaying Pharaoh all over again. But more than that, Herod is unwittingly embodying the devil, who from the very beginning has been trying to do away with the offspring of the woman who's coming to crush his head. Herod becomes Satan's latest tool in trying to eliminate the serpent crusher. This again is the warfare of Christmas. And this too is the fulfillment of a prophetic word. Verse 17, Matthew says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice heard, was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That's a quote from Jeremiah 31, verse 15, which on its face is not speaking into the future. <laughs> Here we go again. It's not speaking into the future about Herod killing babies in Bethlehem, but rather it's about another ancient historical incident. But once again, Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is showing us how the things that Jeremiah spoke about are being fulfilled or filled up by Christ. Notice again we have a, ge a geographical marker. First we had Egypt, now we have Ramah. Also we have a historical figure, Rachel. Remember Rachel? 
she should be pretty fresh on your mind. She, she figured predominantly in our last sermon series as we were going through the life of Jacob. And if you, if you remember, we talked about this just a few weeks ago, as Jacob was traveling towards Bethlehem, Rachel died, and, and, and her tomb is at Ramah. Uh, Jeremiah, of course, is writing long after the time of Rachel, and, and he's, he's writing about one of the saddest moments ever in the history of God's people, the exile Due to the constant rebellion and idolatry that Hosea spoke of, God's, God disciplines his people by sending them into exile. In 605 BC, the Babylonians invade. Nebuchadnezzar's forces ransack the land. They gather the captive Jews at a place called Ramah, where babies are killed. And people are taken away as slaves and dispersed into exile. And Jeremiah personifies the agonizing grief of this moment in the person of Rachel. Now, Rachel was known for her deep pain and mourning over children. She felt deep despair due to her lack of children, and and she did end up having two children, and as her final child was being born, she endured hard labor to the point where her life slipped away, and as she died, she named that child uh, Benani, which means son of my tears, son of my sorrow. Well, now Jeremiah, in poetic fashion, brings Rachel back from the grave. And she, she, she becomes here in this passage the paradigmatic mother of Israel, standing along the roadside at Ramah, watching all of this weeping, unable to be consoled and comforted, weeping and wailing over her descendants, some butchered, some taken away in chains. They are no more. And as Matthew writes about Herod's slaughter, of the Bethlehemite children, he sees the tears of Bethlehem connected to Rachel's tears. It's like, once again, Rachel's children are being swept away. So where's Matthew going with this? Is he just connecting one sad story to another sad story just to say, well, this is really bad? No. Again, let's remember, New Testament writer quoting an Old Testament verse not, we're not to merely think of that verse. It should invoke in your minds the entire passage. And when that happens, you get a much better sense of where Matthew is going when he quotes that verse. Look with me again at Jeremiah 31, 15. And this time we will read further. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. So the tears of Rachel in Ramah are the prelude to hope. The one who refuses consolation receives it. Why? Because Jeremiah is saying tears are not the end of the story. In fact, if you read Jeremiah 31, you'll notice that verse 15 is the only negative verse in that section. Verse 15, as dark as it is, is overwhelmingly surrounded with hope and encouragement. Why? Because on the one hand, Jeremiah is realistic about the sorrow and agony of God's people. But on the other hand, he's also realistic that the joy and the glory to come on the other side of that sorrow will by far exceed the pain of the past. The overall point of Jeremiah 31 actually is not doom and gloom. 
The, the point is, is that the people who are in exile will return. God will bring restoration and a new beginning because God's heart yearns for his people and God is merciful. And, and this is really important, what is the climax of the restoration of God's people? Is, 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 it, is it coming back to the land? What, what's the climax of Jeremiah 31? If you're familiar with Jeremiah 31, you know what it is. It's the new covenant. God promises that a day is coming where he will solve Israel's biggest problem. What's Israel's biggest problem? Babylonians? No. That wasn't their biggest problem. Yes, they were oppressed by foreign powers and they were exiled from the promised land, but they were exiled from the land because of their own sinful rebellion. And exile from the land means exile from the fullness of God's blessing and presence. And and what the people needed the most was not merely a physical return, a physical restoration to the land that they were exiled from. They needed a spiritual return, a spiritual restoration to the God they were exiled from. Who cares if you're back in the land if you're still alienated from God? The only way that that problem of alienation can be solved is not by dealing with all of the bad people out there, all the Babylonians, but to change the bad heart that is in here. And so, just a few verses after the reaching, weeping of Rachel, God says that a day is coming when I will restore my people and I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Right? They, didn't, they didn't have that at first. That's why they kept messing up over and over again. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. A changed heart and forgiveness of sin is the remedy for the people's spiritual exile from God. So be comforted, Rachel. Mourning and sorrow is not the end of the story. A new beginning is coming. So, what does that have to do with Matthew 2? Y'all, this was a tough text for me to, <laughs> to deal with and study. And I hope, you're, I, hope, I hope this is helpful when you're following along. What does this have to do with Matthew 2 and the slaughter in Bethlehem? Why is Matthew citing Jeremiah 31? One commentator explains it this way. He says that in Jeremiah 31, Rachel's tears... The tears of the exile have reached their climax in the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. In other words, with Jesus, the trail of tears is finally coming to an end. The exile is over. The reign of a new king under a new covenant is at hand. So tears aren't the end of the story. The gospel is. But there's something else that must happen for that new covenant to be finally and fully enacted, uh, for Jesus to finally win the war against the serpent and liberate the hearts of his people and bring about forgiveness of the sin that alienated them from God. And that's also hinted at in our passage. So Jesus is the new Israel who will bring about a new exodus, putting an end to our exile by being despised and rejected. So the fourth point there, by being despised and rejected. In verse 19, after all of his bluster and rage against God, after all the things that he tried to do to be his own Lord, building his own kingdom apart from God, Herod dies. 
Just like that. He's in hell. Game over. And his foe kingdom is engulfed by God's fiery wrath. And he's a footnote in history. That, by the way, is the end for every single person who remains committed to the insurrection against God. And so now with the pretender king dead, the path is open for Jesus to make a triumphant return, right? For, for his parents to position Jesus to grow up, making political alliances and getting the support from important people and becoming increasingly popular and plotting a military takeover of Israel and destroying all the bad guys and kicking Rome out of the land. Isn't that how an incoming king wins? Not Jesus. Verse 19, an angel of the Lord again appears to Joseph and tells him to return to Israel because those who sought the child's life are dead. But we find out there's another wicked king in power in Jerusalem, and God directs Joseph to go to Nazareth. More geography. Nazareth is Joseph and Mary's hometown. Small town. Probably around 400 people at the time. It would be what we might call today a podunk backwoods town. Some of you probably are from places like that. Uh, Even in this, Matthew says prophecy is being fulfilled. Verse 23 says that this is happening so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, on the surface, that's puzzling. Get out your concordance and search through the Old Testament. You will not find a quote saying he would be called a Nazarene. So what's going on? Well, I think we get a clue of what Matthew is getting at when we realize that in his first two prophetic mentions, Matthew quotes actual Bible verses written by a specific prophet, like Hosea and Jeremiah. Here in verse 23, however, Matthew says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. That's interesting. Prophets, plural, which tells me that Matthew doesn't have a specific prophet or text in view, but he's got something larger in mind. And again, this is is why Bible geography is so important. Jesus now is identified with Nazareth. Big deal. Actually, it is. In the first century, if you were from Nazareth, you were despised and mocked and ridiculed. Uh, Nazareth was a, a nothing town. Nazarenes were worthless people. There are parts of the country today where people might regard, you know, that in that fashion, but I'm not going to mention the towns because you might have connections there. But you all probably have a town in your mind right now. Even Nathaniel, one of Jesus' very first disciples, when he heard that the long-awaited prophesied uh, prophet was here at last and he was Jesus of Nazareth. You remember Nathaniel's reaction? He was incredulous. Nazareth? What? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Implied answer, no. Of course not. Those people are weird, backwards, irreligious, and have funny accents. You know what's interesting about that, by the way, as an aside? So Nazareth is part of Galilee, the the northern region of Israel, and and, and Galilee was, was very much looked down upon by everybody else in Israel. Nathaniel was from Galilee. But even another Galilean is looking down on Nazareth. That's like the armpit of Galilee. R.T. France says that for someone to be called a Nazarene, 
especially in connection with a messianic claim, was to invite ridicule. Uh, The name is a term of dismissal, if not of actual abuse. The words, he shall be called a Nazarene, represent the prophetic expectation that the Messiah would appear from nowhere and would, would, as a result, meet with incomprehension and rejection. And you have various prophetic texts in the Old Testament that speak about this, that speak about this surprise twist in the story that the, that the Messiah to come would be rejected and despised. Perhaps the prophetic text that captures this the most is Isaiah 53, where the prophet writes that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and as one from whom men hide their faces and we esteemed him not. That seems to be an odd way to establish a kingdom to liberate captive people. But Matthew, in highlighting the rejection of Jesus, is giving us a glimpse of how Jesus will win the war. The Christ did not come as most Jews thought that he would, like mighty King David swinging a sword and chopping off heads, rounding up all the bad guys and rounding up all the usurpers and rounding up all the challengers to his authority. That's what many, most people in Israel wanted. But if Jesus came like that, with a sword, we'd all be dead. We'd all be dead. Why? Because we are all the bad guys. (laughs) We are all the usurpers and the challengers to his kingly authority. We are all miniature Herods. Well, I thought that Messiah would come and establish an earthly kingdom where people could experience peace and liberation from evil. He will. But not yet. He comes on a mission of liberation, but it's a mission to liberate us not from the Herods of this world, but from ourselves, from the Herod that's in here, from our own sinful and selfish hearts, which keep stubbornly leading us to defy God like Herod did. What we need the most is to experience the fulfillment of that Jeremiah 31 new covenant promise. That's what we need the most. Not, not that everybody else, all those fools and morons out there get changed, but that this fool and moron gets changed here. And the new covenant promises that. It's a promise of a new heart. It's a promise of forgiveness of sins. And, and the way Jesus brings that about is not by killing the bad guys, but by being despised and rejected and by being killed himself. The night before he was betrayed, Jesus speaks of the new covenant. And he says, this is the new covenant purchased by his blood. Not other people's blood, but his own. On another occasion, the Gospel of Luke speaks of Jesus' death as an exodus. And what does that exodus accomplish? Isaiah goes on to write, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. Jesus' death and resurrection is the catalyst that brings about a new exodus. 
on the cross, the sins of his people are laid on him. It, it, those, those sins that, that kept us in bondage and in exile from God. And instead of we being punished for those sins, they're punished in him as our representative. And this is the way that Jesus is the new and better Moses and all who trust in him experience liberation from the bondage of sin, restoration to fellowship with God, a new and changed heart and full forgiveness. But it's not only his death that counts for us, but it is also his life. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He, he didn't just succeed where Israel failed, he succeeded where you failed. Where you failed. And so in his perfection, he earns full acceptance by God the Father. And if you're united to Jesus by faith, his perfection counts for you. And therefore, having our sin debt paid for and having received Jesus' perfect righteousness, guess what? Our exile is over. We can stand before God and fellowship with him and be a part of his kingdom again, a kingdom that will outlast all of the vain, crumbling empires of this age. Jesus is the new Israel who will bring about a new exodus, putting an end to our exile by being despised and rejected so that we who believe in him would be accepted and received by God That is how Jesus conquers the darkness, and that is how the war is won. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for King Jesus, who came on a rescue mission to rescue captives, rescue people who were held in bondage to sin and death and the devil, and you brought about a great liberation by sacrificing your son on the cross on our behalf. Father, if there's anyone in this room who has not received the sacrifice of Jesus, if there's somebody in this room who is Herodian, like Herod, seeking to establish his own independence and his own kingdom apart from God, Father, tear that kingdom down and open blind eyes so that that man or woman or boy or girl may see who the true king is, the beauty and the glory of the true king, and would place their trust in him. And Father, I pray for those of us who already have, that you would help us to continue to be joyful and faithful subjects of the king, always with gratitude for what your son has done for us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.